0: You may have read it, or at least you've heard about it. Um, His team had conducted a five-year study exploring what good companies um, do to move from being just good into being great ones. And he was surprised that the one of the, the single key factors in all 11 good to great companies that he explored and really dug deep into, and it was not just when they became great, but during their growth phase, he wanted to see what was it. He said there were, there were two things that, that were, were characteristics that marked very clearly what he found, especially when it came to those who were in leadership or leaders. They had a steely determination, okay? They had this determination, uh, this resolve, and they had an attitude of humi- humility, uh, and that's why, in you see on our thing, it says, be great, resolve to be great. There's this sense that says, I'm going to resolve, be determined to be great for God. It's really interesting. Um, he, he consistently found this, and he writes, we were surprised, shocked really, to discover the type of leadership required for turning a good company into a great one. Compared to high-profile leaders with big personalities who make the headlines and become celebrities, the good to great leaders seemed to have come from Mars. They were self-effacing, quiet, reserved, even shy. And these leaders are a paradoxical blend of humility and professional will. They are more like a Lincoln and Socrates than a Patton or a Caesar. A few years later, he also wrote another book, because he was really intrigued by this, and he wrote a book called How the Mighty Fall." And again, it was another study, and it took some of the data from the study that he had done and, and, and compounded upon it. And he writes in this book, he says, when successful companies become arrogant, it often seals their downfall. Which is really kind of interesting, because if you read in, 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 in the Old Testament, at a point in Deuteronomy, God says to the people, when he's speaking to them, when, when they've come into the land, he says, you know, when you become great, Watch out. Be because you become self-sufficient and self-dependent. You know, common sense would make us think that this would probably be the opposite because you would think humility would curb achievement. You know, humility would be the kind of thing that wouldn't really help with influence. But if you, if you do study upon study, it shows just the opposite. In fact, um, there's a book that came out by David Brooks called The Road to Character. Anybody have a chance to read that? It's a great, really a great book. And David Brooks, in, this, in his book, back in 2015, it was published, he studied eight or nine leaders from our recent history, a number of them are American leaders, within the last hundred years, a couple hundred years. And his book is about their stories and how, about how their character made them great. In his introduction, he writes this, great leaders live with an inverse logic. It's a moral logic, not an economic one. You have to give to receive. You have to surrender something outside yourself to gain strength within yourself. Failure leads to the greatest success, which is humility and learning. Isn't that interesting? Failures lead to the greatest success, which is humility and learning. In order to fulfill yourself, you have to forget yourself. In order to find yourself, you have to lose yourself. Sound like anybody you've heard before? We live in a culture that teaches us to promote and advertise ourselves and to master skills required for success. But that gives little encouragement to humility, sympathy, and honest self-confrontation, which are necessary for building character. And and he, he says in this book, which is really true if you just think about it, over the years, there has been a shift in our culture. True greatness, Brooks discovered in his research, has a strain of humility that was more common about a hundred years ago Than it is now Stretching back centuries He's looked at this Encouraging people to be more skeptical Of their desires More aware of their own weaknesses More intent on combating flaws In their own natures And turning weaknesses into strength Was something that was prized That, that has shifted in our culture today He says popular culture then Esteemed humility Now this part hurts when it, you Listen to what Brooks has to say He continues, there were no t-shirts back then, no exclamation points on typewriter keyboards. So if you're typewriter, just think of like a keyboard for a computer, okay, for some of you. Um, No vanity plates, no bumper stickers with personal moral declarations. People didn't brag about their college affiliations or their vacation spots with little stickers on their rear windows of their cars. There was stronger social sanction against blowing your own horn, Getting above yourself, being too big for your britches. When the elder pilot, the World War II pilot, George Bush, first President Bush, who was raised in that era, was running for president, he, was, he had been kind of inculcated with all these values within himself as a child. So he resisted speaking about himself. If a speechwriter put the word I in one of his speeches, he'd instinctively, as he'd go through it, would cross it out. And the staff would beg him. They'd say, you know what? You're running for president. You've got to talk more about yourself. So eventually they cowed him into doing this, but the next day he got a call from his mother. George, you're talking about yourself again. (laughs) And Bush would revert to form, no more eyes in the speech, no more self-promotion. And here's where Brooks cuts to the heart. I have collected data to suggest that we have seen a broad shift from a culture of humility to a culture of what we might call the big me. From a culture that has encouraged people to think humbly of themselves to a culture that encouraged people to see themselves as the center of the universe. And you just have to think of social media in all different ways that you can get yourself out there. And we've moved to what he calls kind of a big me self-promotional culture. With that as the backdrop, I want you to listen to the words of Jesus when he was, crowds were coming to him, and and he called his disciples to him, and he was preparing as he was moving towards the end of his life here on this earth, getting prepared for the greatest sacrifice, the greatest, what I would call, selfless act, not self-promotional in any way. Listen to what he says. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses seat So you must be careful to do everything they tell you but do not do what they do for they do not practice what they preach See I, I like to call the scribes or the teachers of the law um, They're kind of like the biblical lawyers of that day And in the Pharisees were what I call the religious cops And so these biblical lawyers and religious cops they had positional authority they were into titles and positions. They really didn't necessarily have a lot of personal authority. And they would use that positional authority for their gain. But you have a person like Jesus who, it's really interesting, think about it. Jesus didn't have a title, but people called him rabbi. Jesus didn't have a position. But they put him in the position because of his personal power. His personal power wasn't about his own gain, but his personal power was, was about what he could do for others. And he used that positional power and the titles he was given, again, not for his own gain, but for the sake of others. And his personal power, think about it, you don't need a position to have power. His pers- personal power came from two things, integrity and humility. Isn't it interesting? He, said, he says to them, you know what, they stand up. He says, I'm not telling you not to do what it says. You need to do everything it says because what they're talking about comes from these Old Testament passages. But what I don't want you to do is what they do. See, all their power was cut off at the knees because it was all, again, not, they wanted to sound good, they wanted to look good, but they didn't really want to live it in that way. So he says, do what they say, but um, the Old Testament's not the problem. Just don't practice what they preach. And then if you go on, it's really interesting. Don't do what they do. Look at what he says they do in verse four. They tie up heavy and cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments are long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats of the synagogues. And they love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi. By others. They're the kind of people who need that 10 minutes of fame, right? They're, they're, they're into the reality TV star thing, whether they would say so or not. That's what they're looking for. They'd put it on Facebook. They'd put the picture on Instagram. They would send it on Snapchat, or they would go ahead and, and, and put it onto Twitter, do you ever notice, if you, if you just looked at social media, it's kind of like the highlight reels of people's lives. You ever seen that? That's kind of what I look at. Um, Facebook is like the highlight reels often of people's lives. Ever noticed when you look at it, you, you, you kind of would get depressed if you just looked at that because everyone else seems to be living a life that you're not. These are the kind of guys who, that's kind of where they live. Jesus said everything they do is done for people to see. These guys would, put, would really fit perfectly into what Brooks calls the big me culture. Phylacteries. Those were basically things, you were little boxes you wore on your forehead. They were with verses in them. And they, they often would have the Old Testament verse. One of the most common would be the Shema, which is, is this word that says, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And they would put in that as a reminder of this God. But, but he says they didn't just want little boxes, they'd put big ones on their heads. It made them look more spiritual. Oh, that's a pretty cool box you're wearing. And, and then he talks about phylacteries. He talks about tassels that they'd have in their robe. They'd have really ornate ones, long ones, things that... They, it was kind of like they would wear religious bling. Best seats in the house. At banquets, they wanted to be the, at, at the head table. You know, they'd come into a room and they'd see the, the banquet and they'd go, well, you know, how do I sit near the front? And in fact, not how do I... I'm going to get up to the front. They liked the place of honor. At church, they would be the kind of people who would be in, not the front rows, but in the back. You know, that's the ones that are the important seats. Anyway, they love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and called rabbi. You see, when you would see them at Lunds, you better go out of your way to make them feel important. You know, when you see um, George Kenworthy, is George in here today? When you see him at a, you know, out somewhere, make sure you call him Dr. Kenworthy. It's that kind of thing. And George would kill me for that. So anyway, when he's in the next service, I will use me. Anyway, note what they say, Jesus says in verses 8 and 10. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers, and do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he is in heaven, nor are you to be called instructors or teachers, for you have one teacher, instructor, the Messiah, me, Jesus. Now, it's really interesting. He's not making this blanket statement that you can't ever call a person professor so-and-so, or you can't call your Parents, if you're younger here, your father, or something like that. He's talking about being in this role where, where you are kind of the reservoir of truth and you have this title, that, this position that, that requires for people to, to look up to you and to be subservient to you. And so he's not against titles, he's against the big me culture. He's actually saddened and angered by this inner craving and need to be seen. That's great and honestly think about it and some of you I know it's not the case because your nature is different but don't many of us want to I mean I know I I struggle with that all the time somehow the title the applause the promotion the affiliation with someone who's important the college you've attended maybe the company you work for the money you make are the things that make you great. And it was Jesus was saying, it's, it's this need for that, that that gets in the way. Because what it is, is it's, your need for being great is all about you. And often it can come at the expense of others. So if you look at verses 11 and 12, Jesus turned to the corporate chart, if you want to look at it here upside down. He has this what inverted logic. He says, the greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And since don't grab for power out of your personal need at the expense of anyone else. Quit using your power to get what you want. Greatness doesn't consist in how many people see you as great It's not about how many followers you get on Facebook, Twitter, or things such as that. Greatness is about humility, and humility is always about others. It takes the role where you take your power, whether it's a positional title or it's your own personal power, and you use it to empower others. You use it to influence others for good. You think about, how can I take what I've been given and and use this to actually lift someone else up? The title, whether you have it, whether CEO, executive, vice president, superintendent, director, manager, teacher, coach, parent, is not about you, but about how you'll use that power in that position to serve others, because you have power, to influence good in the lives of others. Now you think about it, a parent, let's say a parent got a little bit um, overinflated with their power. And they saw their kids not as, just like we had this baby dedication, not as a, a gift that they're going to, how do I do all in my power to help raise this child so it will have character and maturity so that at some point it's no longer dependent on me. But this child is now able to to be all on their own, to really handle life and, 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 and take the tough things that come and all those things and, and, and be really gifted and empowered. Now, now, the parent who sees the child, not in that way, but the parent who sees the child as the, the one that really is going to make them feel better, helps keep their emotions in line, and, 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 and they are making sure they look good so they look good, that kind of stuff. The parent who takes their power and seeks to get the child to make them great, we call that usually, usually abuse, right? I'm gonna ask you the same thing. Whether it be my position as a pastor or your position in a place of work or, or your own personal power, if you are taking your power in that way, what Jesus seems to be saying, this really cuts to the heart, guys. He is saying this. When you use power for your gain, for your own self, it's abuse, If your job and the position you have at your job is about you, you're not going to be thinking about others. You're not going to be thinking about how do I help them. So here's a definition of greatness. This is what Jesus says it is. In in a way, Jesus was great in, in this way, and he calls us to be great. Greatness is humbly using your power to serve and influence others for good. It's rejecting the culture of the big me. It's learning to promote a culture of loving, sacrifice, and service for others. And so he says, I'm going to just give you three things. Be great. I, think, I, I, I titled this message, Try Humility. So I'm going to ask you to try humility. Be great, try humility, and serve others. Very simple point. Use your power humbly And practice what you preach. Just do what you say. Really, just this week, just think about it, work on it. Jesus again said, it's not your message, but it's your method. It's not what you say, it's whether you do what you say. And so I just want you to think about this. You may say a lot of good things here at church, and you may agree with a lot of good things, but let me ask you this. Are you weighing someone else down? What kind of load might you be putting on others? Because Jesus says, here's what they do. They tie up heavy loads. They put them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not do anything, even lift a finger to move that. Because what they were doing was putting all these laws out there in such a way that they could never measure up to them. And they themselves measured up higher so they got greater approval. And so it was fine to have people in those. There was no problem to put a weight on them as long as it made them look good. You know, if you say you're going to be compassionate, then let me just think about it. What does that look like for you and your family? What does it look like for you where you work? What does it look like with others around you? If you say you're going to, and you believe that generosity is a good thing, then, then how do you use your money? Seriously, what do you do with what you've been given in that way? That's why I think tithing and giving is such a difficult thing to do. Because it really tests what we say. Use your power humbly to help others be seen. Look for opportunities to promote someone else. So if you want to try humility, serve others by helping others be seen. And you might be thinking, what does that look like? He says, everything they do is done to be seen by others. That's what Jesus said. So what would it look like for one day, just, I want you to think one day, intentionally, one day this week. What would it look like for you to do something where you help someone else get recognized, be seen, or admired? approved does someone come to mind I want you just to to process I want this to be not just a a message to listen to I want you to think about it intentionally this week as you're thinking about right now what would it look for you like for you to say how do I promote this person how do I help this person feel admired how do I how do I help this person be seen Use your power. Oh, here I wrote down this. Instead of looking for self-promotional opportunities, look for opportunities to promote others. What about making it a habit to send notes of encouragement to others? How about a card that said something like this? I saw you today. Thanks for the way you loved your sister. I saw you today. Thanks for the way you consistently arrive on time with such a positive attitude. I saw you today. Thanks for your can-do spirit. I saw you today. Thanks for washing the clothes every week or for making sure the cars are well serviced. What would that look like if we used our personal power to influence others so they experienced love? Use your power to humbly give away what you want to grab for. Take the initiative to honor someone who receives little honor. Greatness through humility is the noble choice to forgo status and deploy your resources or your influence for the good of others before yourself. Now, this is a real hard one for me. I've used this before, and I don't know, I'm still in, I don't know if I really want to do this yet. But at the airport, let someone else be first in line. Yeah, I don't know. I write that every time, and I just, you know, you, you can keep me somewhat accountable. Slow down and let the person at Costco, with their cart that's fuller than yours, get in the line before you. Ooh, that doesn't make sense. Okay, what would it look like to honor someone? What would it look like to greet someone so they feel loved and respected? Greatness through humility is more about how I treat others than how I think about myself. Humble people are great people because they're not trying to grab onto the need of to be honored, to be recognized, to be heard or seen. And I was thinking about this, and I was actually thinking about this morning when I was going through the message again, and, and I just thought to myself, what would it mean to come to like a holiday and to take more of a back seat than having to be the one to speak? Now, some of you take the back seat, and so you need to learn. One of the things Brooks says is there's, this culture of big me is not all bad because some of you live with such a little me, you need to get a little bigger. Be great. Try humility. Here's another one. Learn from others. Not just serve others. But part of, part of this whole idea of, of humility and, and this idea of greatness, if you're going to be great, if you don't have a posture that learns from others, you'll never really grow into the kind of influence that I think God wants you to grow into. People who influence others are people who have been influenced by others. You have to learn from others. So try humility and let others teach you. Recognize that you're not the reservoir of truth. Be careful Before you think you're just too great Jesus says don't be called rabbi Because you have only one master And and one rabbi in that sense And and your brothers don't be called Father for you have one father Don't call yourself teacher for you have one teacher The anointed one See the Pharisees they loved to be looked at They loved especially we looked at the ones Who knew it all they liked to be the ones Who taught everybody they liked to be the ones That said hey if you want to learn something Learn from me And Jesus turns around and says, you know what? The kind of people who are great are the kind of people that are not going around, hey, let me teach you something. But they're the kind of people that are going, boy, even in the person who may seem to have the least to give, they have something to teach me. Part of learning from others is the ability to listen. I was reading in, in a great story about Muhammad Ali during the peak of his career, and, and Ali. Let's let's face it, he had this shtick. You know, I think some. I think he was probably more humble man than he was, but part of his self-promotional shtick, as he we were entering into this big me age, he was one who helped. That was uh, he would you know say all these things and do all these things. Uh, at the height of his of his career, at one point, he was on a flight. He was on a flight to another uh, match that he was going to be doing, and as he was flying. The pilot announced over the loud system We're approaching severe turbulence Passengers and crew Fasten your seatbelts immediately I saw the crew hurried up and down the aisles Like they do And make sure everything was secure And then we were looking to see If people's seatbelts were actually fastened To make sure they were And one of the flight attendants looked up And saw that Ali's seatbelt was hanging still on the edge So she came up to him And she said, excuse me, sir She knew who he was Would you please fasten your seatbelt? She asked very politely, and the captain, uh, she said, has advised that we could be hitting a real rough patch, so would you please, would you be kind, you know, buckle your seatbelt. And he looked at her calmly, and and he just said to her, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And quick as a flash, she replied, and Superman don't need no plane either. (laughs) I love that. You're 30,000 feet in the air in the middle of a violent storm. Your sense of greatness is going to quickly come down to your knees when that plane starts to shake because superman He doesn't just need a seatbelt; He needs a crew. He needs a pilot. He needs a plane. He needs a whole lot of people to be where he's at And that's just the way it is for all of us Nobody here is where you're at without a whole lot of people who have been in your life So continue to be a learner and one of the ways to do that is to listen to take time to just stop and really listen, to really understand someone else. Because that's part of what it means to learn from others is not just to listen, but to listen with a sense of curiosity so you can understand. One of the greatest things that I've learned in, in marriage, and in, 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 there's a, a, a communication tool that both Grace and I and some other couples were able to use where we learned how to just, and I'm, st- I'm really still, I mean, I'm a beginner at this, but learning to listen with curiosity to really understand. The other person it's a well-known book by Doris Kearns Goodwin called team of rivals who points out that Lincoln was not like the Pharisees who would bring everybody around them who agreed with them so they didn't need to listen to anybody but in Lincoln's case he brought a whole bunch of people really gifted people who had they had a oneness of where they were going but they had all different ways they looked at it so that they could get the best so the Holy Spirit could call the best of it. Sometimes learning from others is not just about listening and then seeking to understand, but sometimes it's about letting go of the need to be right. Being open and willing to admit, and I catch this, you could be wrong, okay? Being open and willing to admit you could be wrong. Not saying that you are, but just possibly could. Um, I was at a a dinner party between um, Christmas and New Year's, and we were with another family. We were playing a game with that family, and at one point, um, as I passed this thing, it's kind of this picture thing. I passed it, and the person over me said, well, you messed this up, and just kind of, I felt really accused, and right away, in my heart, I didn't do anything different than before, and I started to really defend myself, and it was one of those wonderful, awkward moments, Right? And I kind of got a little big, there's no way. And then I kind of tried to pull back, and I did. And that night, my wife is so wonderful. One of the things she's learning is to be a little more big me, be a little more courageous. And she said, um, Could we talk about a few things that happened tonight? I'm thinking, I don't know. She goes, How about, and we talked about that. And I go, Well, I wasn't wrong. I, I, I mean, I. I don't think I, you know, and I was kind of, and she goes, do you think there may be a more humble way to handle that? Well, she's so smart. And you know, she's doing this service, this whole series on humility. So then she's so wonderful. She says, pray about it. If you're serious about this humility stuff, I'm sure God will help you see that. Okay. So the next morning I'm in my quiet time. I'm reading about I don't know how I got to read this. I think I was passing, looking at something. and reading about this lady who's called the Little Fowler. She's the Saint Therese of Lisieux. She, um, she, she died about 24 years of age, but she wanted to love like Jesus. She's a, she was in the Catholic Church, and she was um, made a saint in the Catholic Church. She believed that Jesus wanted great love out of an interior attitude of childlike trust in God. I'm reading this, I'm thinking, okay. And, I've been, and the question is, God, you know, how do I handle this thing? You know, I'm, Okay, I'm open. You know, That's why quiet time's are great guy. If you don't stop the next day, or you don't stop at night and review your day, or you don't take some time to preview your day and think about what's happened, if, if you don't do that, you won't hear from God. You won't actually have opportunities for him to do some of the corrections you need. So when we talk about quiet time, it's not about getting brownie points and you're reading the Bible. It's about really stopping to hear the voice of God using his word. And so I'm reading this. She did she 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 wanted to love God like a child. She she did this by offering him small everyday acts of love, going out of her way to befriend the crankiest nun in the convent, cheerfully and silently enduring a cold bedroom, and refusing to complain when accused of a wrong she didn't commit. And it was like, wham. I mean busted. I just I just I just had to repent. I mean, now if I was accused of murdering someone, that would be different. But messing up a card game, I mean, humility is about letting go about this need to be right. The need to win. It's far better would have been just, I could have, I didn't think I did it wrong, but who knows? That would have been the humble approach. Be great, try humility. And here's one of the last things I want to call you to. Submit to God. For verse 12 says, For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus seems to be saying, here's the word humility. In the word it means to choose to bow down, to choose to go low, to choose to move to a place beneath what you think. You should be. Jesus seems to be saying the way up is down. Step down or you will be put down, this seems to say. Be humble or, or humiliated. Let God lift you up. Lead the self-promotion to God. Submitting to God may mean staying in a place and letting God to promote you. Because humility is a choice. and in sometimes that 's just a hard choice. You may be in a place of work. so often this is about promotion that 's how people look at it, and like job promotion, things like that. And I just want to say you you may be in a place where you don 't understand why God has you where you are it 's not always clear why God may be holding you back, but sometimes submission is a willing choice to say god i don 't get it, but i 'm going to stay there." I, there was a, I was reading about this um, George Marshall. It's in Brooks' book, but he talks this whole thing about Marshall, who was a man who had a, a lot of humility. But what was really interesting, he was so gifted and so great that the leaders that were over him never wanted to promote him. It was a lot like if you've read Hamilton, Hamilton with Washington, you never wanted to promote him because he needed him to do what was being done. So he'd never often would get promoted because, and you'll have leaders like that. Some of you serve people who, they need you because they know they're toast without you. And he really wanted to be promoted, and finally at one point he got a position, but it wasn't really a promotion, it was side position. It wasn't to the theater war, that kind of place where he wanted to be, but he got promoted to um, Fort Bragg down in Georgia, and he's down there in Georgia, he's at Fort Bragg, and they make him the leader over um, leading the, in, in the leaders of the military. And, and he, he's such a bright guy, he reformed how leadership took place. And what he didn't know, because this was before World War II, that almost all of the leaders that were in the military went through that reforming place. And what he didn't know is he wasn't just reforming some leaders. He was actually, by God's grace, reforming the whole U.S. Army. Now, there's, I, I could tell you more about his humility. Uh, God, you don't know why you're in this place, but humility... Is what we said It's about learning to use your power To serve others It's about beginning to learn from others And how do you listen and understand And you don't need to be right And then it's this whole idea Of how do I submit to God In this situation I don't get it But God may Now there are times You need to push up That may be a whole other thing And you may need courage to do that But Could you be in a place Where God is doing something That you have no idea Of why he's doing what he's doing And the other part of it is, this isn't even promotional at all. This is not about work or about a job. When we look at this verse, the the verse really, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted, is far richer than that. There's, There's, in this verse, often God may be lifting you out of something that is holding you back by putting you into a place where you submit. Sometimes when you choose to submit to God and put yourself in God's hands, he will lift you up in ways you could never imagine. And that can happen in a whole lot of different ways. It may be taking a course that you just kind of think is beneath yourself. It may be listening to someone and and allowing for them to speak in your life. And, And it may be... A counseling ministry that you as a couple need to go to because you need to humble yourself to learn how to communicate or do something like that. There's all kinds of different ways. One of the things we've been doing here in the church is um, in this uh, last few months to the last six months or so, one of our desires is to kind of have people come up and share how God is at work in their life. And so I've asked Lynn if she would come, and i don't have the worship team at this time, if they'd come. And we have a ministry uh, that our church has um, been very involved in called Gateway. It's a, it's a ministry, uh, specifically a prayer ministry, that just helps people um, understand where there might be lies that God's hold that might be in their heart they're not aware of, uh, or some um, areas of forgiveness they not, might not be aware of. And it's just a process where someone prays with you. It's a real humbling thing to go into. It's kind of scary. So Lynn, you want to share your story and, and tell us how you, how you submitted to God and, and how he lifted you out of something.
1: Good morning. I was sitting in this church when I first heard about Gateway Prayer Ministry. It's a sort of counseling through prayer, and it sounded cool for other people. Each time I heard it described, I thought of all the people I knew who could really use it. I did not feel the need to go myself. My life was pretty good. I had a wonderful marriage, great kids, good friends, fulfilling career. I'd been raised by loving parents. I had good relationships with my siblings. I didn't think I had any weird skeletons in my closet. I loved God with all my heart, and I didn't have any particular desire for counseling. Yet I kept thinking about it. Was God nudging me to go? If so, I could not imagine why. But the fourth time I heard about Gateway Prayer Ministry, I decided I couldn't really recommend it to others if I hadn't gone through it myself. So I emailed Wayzata Free and I asked for an appointment. I met my prayer counselors in a cozy office in Wayzata with comfortable chairs, a lamp, and a box of Kleenex. They were two women, and we chatted first to break the ice. They explained that we would be asking God to reveal whatever needed healing in my life. I didn't think I needed much healing, but I was game. They said we were going to ask Jesus some questions. They would say the words, and I would repeat after them, and then we'd wait to see if Jesus would bring anything to my mind. Jesus, is there anything in my life you want to heal? We asked in prayer, and I was supposed to wait to see if there was an answer in my heart. I didn't expect much, but suddenly a memory came, and with it, a huge wave of emotion. It was even more surprising because this wasn't something I remembered consciously. It was just something I'd been told had happened to me when I was very young. I was born with collapsed lungs and almost died. For the first two years of my life, I was hospitalized several times because of problems with my lungs. The winter I was two, I got pneumonia again. My grandmother came to stay with my older brother and sisters so my parents could spend time with me in the hospital. My mother told me that she would sit by my hospital bed so I could see her through the oxygen tent for much of the day. My father came after work to hold me in his lap and feed me my dinner. Then they would put me back in the oxygen tent and go home to be with their other children. Hospital rules in the 1950s didn't allow parents to stay past visiting hours. I was there two or three weeks before they sent me home. But for many days after that, the only way I would go to sleep was if I was spread-eagled across my father's chest. My parents finally figured out that I was holding him down so he couldn't leave me. Fear of abandonment is every little child's worst nightmare. I was too young to understand why I had been left in the hospital and why only strangers would come if I cried in the night. But something was added to this. My mother said the nurses told them I was one of the brightest children they had ever seen. I take this with a grain of salt. I have met many people far brighter than I in the course of my life. But I was a child who loved language and learning new words, and I talked early. I probably had a large vocabulary for a two-year-old, and this impressed the nurses. Knowing how carelessly people talk over the heads of young children, I am sure that this was repeated in my hearing. And in my two-year-old mind, trying to make sense of it all, I must have come to believe two things— First, that my parents had chosen to keep my brother and sister, but had sent me away. And second, that when they were told I was smart, they took me back. You know, that day at Gateway Prayer Ministries, this hit me like a tsunami. It all made sense. I realize now Why, I had always had an instinctive reaction of absolute, helpless fury whenever someone made some little teasing comment about my being a bit clueless or a bit dumb. During my life, I had tried to reason this reaction away. I knew I was fairly intelligent. I knew that no one can be smart in every field. So why did these small, offhand comments that happen so rarely bother me so much? My interior rage was all out of proportion to whatever had been said. But anger is a cover for fear. And the wild, furious fear that overcame me at those moments was nothing more and nothing less than a little child crying in the dark, afraid she wasn't good enough to go home. It might have taken 10 years of therapy for me to figure this out on my own. But Jesus shined his light into that dark place in my life and healed me in a moment. Since that time, I have been conscious of a new relaxation, a new sense of calm and quiet peace. Anxious habits of thought that have persisted for years are just gone. I didn't even know that dark place was there, but Jesus did, and I'm so grateful for his light in my darkness.
0: First, I just got to say it takes a lot of courage to ever come up and share your story. And so, Lynn, thank you. Second, I'm going to ask why don't you stand for a moment? And as you do, we're going to sing in just a minute. But as we sing this song, I want you to be considering, is there an area, God, where you're just saying, I need to serve someone. I I, I need to use the power you've given me to really influence someone for good. I don't know what that looks like. Or it could be that you're saying, God, I need to really learn from this individual. I need to start listening. I don't need to be right. And what is it that God might be calling you to submit to? Because God loves to take people and as you submit and humble yourself to remove the things that hold you back. And that's what I hear so much in Lynn's story. The promotion was more about God taking away something so she could move forward with a calm. So I don't know what that is in your life, but part of what we're doing here today is to say, God, shine your light into my heart. I want to be more and more like you so I can be used in a great way for you.